you know, that's what makes me optimistic is that I don't, you know, the, I, I, I say a lot of what I think are stupid things in lecture, but I, I like to make sure you know what, uh, what the first step of the 12 happens to be, which is recognizing that you have a problem, right? Now, I'm not suggesting that I'm a recovering alcoholic, uh, <laughs> but, you know, but, but, I, but I'm saying that I think you're ready for step two, right? I, I, you know, I, I don't really think there's anything else, right, that we can kind of expose this generation to. Uh, and that that's what I think makes me hopeful. The Six Beers Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. This week we talked to David Johnson, who is the econ guy at UW-Madison, and we talked a lot about a lot of interesting topics. Yeah, this one was a little bit different. Um, we basically brought a few topics to him, which included UBI and student debt, um, healthcare, and let him run with them. Um, like we said before, he is an economist at the University of Wisconsin. I think for that reason, he can shed some different light on these issues than we might uh, be able to get to ourselves. Uh, for context, this was recorded on the day of the inauguration, which I think adds a little bit of uh, spice to it, but regardless, I hope you enjoy it. The Six Beers Podcast, presented by Nick Bauman and Ashlyn Galbraith. Quite frankly, yeah. um, you know, I before I came over here, I watched the inaugural, I watched the speech, I've read the New York Times, you know, views on the Biden stimulus package. That's what I want to talk about, or at least in my I, course, that's what I'm talking about. I think, I'd love to hear about it. Yes. Yeah. I wanted to ask if you planned on, you know, teaching some of that since it's so close to next semester and how your kind of teaching would change to talk about those things. Sure. So um, uh, what's the best way to put it? Um, and, you know, I would, if, you know, one of the things I like to do in person when it's the first day is that I will uh, give the students a fact sheet to fill out. Mostly it's just name, why you're taking the course, you know, have you had any economics before? Cause it's one-on-one. Um, and then I ask them to classify themselves uh, on conservative and liberal on economics and social policy. So are you, and sometimes, and I appreciate that sometimes, so one of the choices is basically I have no idea. I'm hoping this course will help me figure that out, right? Because I'm not certain when I was 18, I knew what it meant to be a social conservative. You know, I, I'm, you know, in this day and age, maybe we still don't know what the hell that means, but um, I would describe myself as socially liberal and economically conservative. I am much more than I was at your age, uh, sympathetic to the libertarian cause. Now, if you go, if you actually talk to a libertarian, um, they are not necessarily in favor of big government. Um, they are definitely on the economic conservative side, but they are absolutely in favor of government out of your social life. So they would be pro-choice. They would be pro-gay marriage. Whether or not they personally believe, right, that, you know, that that's something that they would abide by, they believe that governments have absolutely no role to play in who you marry or what a woman does with her body. So um, that's kind of why I try to get at least the students thinking about that um, because it's not a source of confusion so much as it is a source of um, not necessarily angst, maybe a little bit of wonderment that they go through the entire semester and can't really 
classify the current events views that I'm giving them from me, right, in terms of a bucket, right? Because sometimes, um, I mean, I, I, you know, I, did I agree with the Trump tax cuts? Yes and no, because I'm a good economist. I have two arms. I have two hands on the one hand, on the other hand. Um, do I think that the corporate income tax in the United States was anti-competitive globally? I do. And so did Mr. Obama, by the way. And so does Mr. Biden, by the way. So um, would I have cut taxes on the wealthy as much as the president did in 2017? I would not. At least I wouldn't, assuming that they would either pay for themselves or get us to 4% growth, neither of which happened. So I, I think I, I'm not trying to give the students a more nuanced view. I'm trying to get them out of, you know, going to one pole or the other, right? So I don't think it's instructive for me as a professor to say, okay, if you are a Republican, uh, then you must find something in my course that allows you to stay Republican on every single issue. Uh, I think that's a mistake. I would say the same to the Bernie Sanders supporter that I would to the Donald Trump supporter. I'm trying to bring everybody in these courses to the center, right? If you are an absolute Bernie Sanders lefty, that's great. Then it will not bother you to be challenged on some of those policies that Bernie is espousing. If you decide that you agree with Bernie, but you're not necessarily all in, that doesn't make you a bad person. But I don't I want you to be informed enough that you can go to that Bernie Sanders supporter and say, hey, um, a little bit more means testing would make a lot more sense. Hey, a $15 per hour minimum wage is likely to have more negative employment effects that we, than we're being told. And we should run the numbers and we should, and this is the phrase we're now returning to, thank God, as an economist, evidence-based policymaking, right? Yeah. The biggest problem with the Trump years for me was the absolutely unbridled assault on the scientific method. Um, it wasn't just alternative facts, it was an alternative reality. Um, and that I think is really dangerous. But mm -hmm. by the same token, as, as much as I want um, right out of the gate. I mean, the first current events thing I'm going to record tomorrow, the intros to the first 101 and 102 lecture will be, um, you know, what the Times thinks is right and wrong about the Biden program, what the Economist magazine thinks is right and wrong. And it will start with everybody wanting a crystal ball. So the Times is upset that there is basically a sunset clause on the extension of unemployment benefits in the Biden plan, the $1.9 trillion plan that's on the table. They think it should be extended and not put a, you know, we ought to put a sunset clause because we have to make sure that we're okay when November, September of 2021 comes and we might still not be out of the soup. Um, great. Well, you know, that would be great. If we all had that big ass crystal ball, we could just, you know, I mean, that, and that part of it, I think is, is dangerous because if you're Joe Biden, you're trying to get something through Congress. And you're trying to deal with senators like, shall we say, Ron Johnson of the great state of Wisconsin. If you tell Ron Johnson that you're extending these unemployment benefits into the future and you're not going to tell him when they're going to end, he will not. Well, he's probably not going to vote for the bill anyway, but he sure as hell, right, is not going to vote for that. Um, but, but I think we, um, you know, I tell the students on the first day in both 101 and 102, I'm never going to tell you how I vote, which I won't. I will not. Mm. Why? Because it doesn't matter. Because the course is not about me. And I understand, you know, I, I have lots of kind of pithy things to tell you about teaching. 
Um, I keep these in the back of my head to make sure I don't violate my own principles. Um, a good teacher to me has to be the center of attention in the classroom, has to be the center of attention. It cannot be the PowerPoint slide. It cannot. It has to be you. But you have to not be the center of attention outside of the classroom. When you come to office hours, you're going to ask me a question about my personal life. I'm going to give you this much of an answer and throw it back to you. You're going to ask me what I think about blah, blah, blah. I'll give you this much of an answer and then ask what you think. The most useful evaluations I ever get are the people, and it makes me sad and happy at the same time. This was the first course where I really felt like my voice, my opinion mattered, right? Now, that makes me feel great. It also makes me feel sad that you haven't experienced a course like that before, yeah. right? And I understand that it's, you know, it is the easiest thing to do to make yourself the center of attention. Look, is it, is it nice to have 400 people looking at you? Sure. Can that be dangerous? Yeah, very dangerous. Because you have to take a step back and say, I do not want to create 400 clones of myself. I don't. Um, so I make it a point. Now, I don't put little chalk marks up in my head, but I will criticize Bernie Sanders. I will criticize Joe Biden. I will criticize Donald Trump and Ted Cruz and Ron Johnson and uh, Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel. You know, they're all up for grabs because I think um, somebody in one of the Harvard courses, uh, you know, a, a former Harvard student in one of my courses wanted to do a, an article on me, which I really don't like, but I, I'm talking to you now because you asked me. And he said, you know, what, what goals do you have when you teach a course? And I was like, I, ever, I only ever have one goal. And he printed this, unfortunately, which is to shake the shit out of my students. That's what I want to do, right? <laughs> and, and, I, you know, and, and I was kind of throwing it out as, you know, and to me, I think that's a positive connotation. I don't think of that as a negative, even though it's got a nasty word in it. I don't think of that negatively at all. Right. I will have people that come to office hours. The first semester I was here, a guy who I've now written five recommendations to go to law school. And he's a terrific economist who came to office hours wearing his Scott Walker T-shirt the very first semester. Right. And I know that he was doing that because he was assuming that I was a charter member of the liberal elite, which I don't think I am because I don't really know what the hell that means. I, I don't <laughs> think of myself as an elitist. Um, and liberal to me, because I'm old enough, means that I believe in markets, right? That if you understand the meaning of the word to the economist, a liberal economic policy was synonymous with market-friendly policies. So now we're talking people like the people on the right politically as neoliberals. Oh, for God's sake. Um, but this kid, you know, this young man was not coming to office hours to kind of say, well, you know, I want you to let you know that I'm supporting Scott Walker. Okay, that's great. Um, I was able, and I wouldn't say that I schooled him. That's another thing. You know, we never, you know, if you disrespect a student, you're done. You're done. And if you do it on the first day, if you do it in the first lecture, um, you, you, you might as well hand the reins off to somebody else, right? So I was never going to disrespect this person. But he, to this day, thinks that the worst policy ever passed in U.S. history was the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, right? You know, it's the worst. And I had to educate him. I had to offer some suggestions that he read a little bit of the bill before he decided, you know, he had basically uh, where he was getting this. I have no idea. I was probably getting that from the right, that this was, you know, a, an, a shit show is what he described it as. 
but really didn't have a really firm understanding of what was in the bill. Um, but he specifically didn't like the mandate, right? He didn't think that it was the government. And this is the libertarian view, right? That the, the government cannot tell me that I must have health insurance. From, from, and, um, from like just an economist's point of view, what do you think about the mandate? It, um, I, I think it's absolutely necessary, uh-huh. right? Because right. it's all about risk pooling, right? If you, yeah. if you don't, so the combination of two things will kill this bill or will kill its ability to provide somewhat, something close to universal coverage. We have now gotten rid of the mandate. Actually, we didn't get rid of the mandate. What we got rid of was the penalty for not having health insurance. So, which, which only, only yeah. in America, yeah. right? Yeah. We say, yeah. well, there's still a mandate. Well, what if I don't have health insurance? Uh, nothing. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, you know, so just get rid of it for Christ's sake. But um, if you're going to not have a mandate and yet you're going to protect pre-existing conditions, it's adverse selection, run amok, mm-hmm. right? You, you will yeah. worsen that risk pool because the people for whom healthcare is a bad deal, those are the healthy people, right? So mm-hmm. in having a mandate, you have to have, you know, policies you know, like the gold and the silver and the platinum and the bronze and whatever it is that are enticing enough to you people, right? Mm-hmm. Who really shouldn't be paying high premiums and should actually have high deductibles for preventable diseases, right? Then I would be telling you, uh, Nick and Ashlyn, I'm going to try and remember <laughs> your names, only two of you, yeah. right? That um, if you get a preventable disease, I'm going to require you to pay the first 10 or 20,000 of the, of the care for that disease, mm-hmm. right? Because you can keep yourself from getting lung cancer by not smoking. Yeah. You can keep yourself from getting type two diabetes by not eating at McDonald's 25 times a week. Right. But in return for that, so it's carrot and stick in return for that. Right. I'm going to charge you a little, little tiny premium because your risk of that type two diabetes or lung cancer uh, right now at your age is pretty small. Mm-hmm. And then what I do going forward, right, is I start tweaking those premiums and deductibles based on what you have done with your own health care. The healthier you are, the lower the premium I charge you. So- and now, I hate to say it, this is pretty boilerplate chicken shit economics, right? Yeah. It's carrots and sticks. It's incentives. Yeah. It's not particularly difficult. Um, so you try to incentivize in your system, you incentivize people taking care of themselves, essentially, from preventable diseases. Do yeah. you think, I okay. do, you think yeah. do you think there should still be some risk pooling for the non-preventable diseases? Yes, so, I do, right? But so here, here's what I do, mandate. right? So how do you do that? Right, so I, I think um, all, everything is going to be, you know, whether it's a grandfather clause or chicken and the egg, whenever you decide to make a change, right? There are always going to be some people that are caught in between, right? I get that. So if you, unfortunately, right, uh, they pass a new law and you do have type two diabetes, right? Then it's, you know, it's not something you're likely to be able to get rid of. But if you can manage those symptoms better, if you can show me, and they do this in Britain, right? In the British healthcare system, doctors are compensated in part, based on improvements in the health outcomes of their patients. Now think about that, right? So the first thing you wouldn't want to do as a doctor in a screwed up application of that is to take on 
a patient with type two diabetes and a blood pressure of 200 over 180 or whatever it is, right? So clearly, you know, that gets into the whole death spiral, you know, discussion, right? But if I take you on, right, and I get you to manage those symptoms better and your A1C or your blood pressure or your BMI or whatever metric you want to talk about it comes down or improves, then I'm going to compensate the doctor a little bit more and I might cut the premium of that person with that condition. But let me give you another example, which sounds a little crazy. How many times in the last 48 hours have you seen one of these goddamn commercials about the Allstate safe driving discount, right? So it's Aaron Rodgers or it's that stupid jello mold that's on top of the car that the one is looking at, right? We're doing, that's exactly what we're doing with car insurance, right? We're saying the better driver you are, the lower your goddamn insurance. Well, tell me why we can't do that with healthcare. I mean, oh my God, it just isn't that difficult. The difficulty is, is that in a very strange way, and I would say the same is true when you're talking about environmental economics, I have to show the average Joe and Mary that they can make money by being healthier, that they can make money by being greener, right? And now, guess what? If I told you that there's money to be made in being an environmentalist, you'd be the best environmentalist on the planet. Even if you don't think that climate change is real. I don't give a shit about that climate change being real, but I'm making a shitload of money because of it. You know, as an economist, that will never bother me. Um, and in the dealings I have with environmentalists, they always want the environmental thing to be the cake. And I was like, no, it's going to be the icing on the cake. I'll get you there, right? But if you make the environmental piece front and center, you're not going to get as much buy-in. And they think that's a cop out. They think I have, you know, I have betrayed, you know, the essence of being an environmental economist. And I'm like, when you're talking about healthcare, when you're talking about trade, when you're talking about environmental economics, it's ends justify means. Um, and if I can get you there, I mean, look how prevalent Allstate, I believe, was the first person to do that. Right. It was the safe driving discount. It was the guy, the, the African-American guy with the big voice. Right. Right. Um, and now. You know, it's flow, it's Aaron Rodgers and Allstate. It's like everybody's doing it. Right. Imagine what would happen, right? If we had that kind of, you know, awareness of the healthcare situation. Mm -hmm. um, and that, this was already starting to become part of what I talked about in the courses last semester, mm -hmm. right? You know, I'm not going to use the stupid, you know, when life hands you lemons, make lemonade. Okay. In the midst of the pandemic, right? We have a unique ability to rewrite the policies on healthcare, to rewrite the policies on unemployment insurance and, and how we deal with labor markets generally, to rewrite how we deal with income inequality and poverty. Uh, and all of those are intertwined, to rewrite how we decide to heat our homes and you know, find energy you know, in the 21st century. Um, and that um, I, I would like to think that those opportunities become bipartisan. Uh, I'm a little bit more skeptical, I suppose, uh, especially in how long it took. You know, we were to the precipice of telling people on the 26th of December, right? Talk about being Scrooge, right? That your benefits were going to run out. These extra benefits were going to run out. So have a Merry Christmas if you celebrate Christmas. But the next day, you know, it's ramen all the way or the soup kitchen or whatever. Uh, you know, that 
And of course, you know, we, they passed the uh, extension in, on the 23rd of December, and I'm sure they, you know, patted themselves on the back for being so incredibly prescient. Um, but I think that um, to get back to the only reason I continue uh, to teach hundreds of people at a time is that I, I think that's, um, you know, if, if you, um, I have members of my extended family are like this. I'm not going to name them, but they're, um, you know, they are definitely staunch Democrats. And I'm not certain they've ever met a Republican that they thought was intelligent. And, and I, that's a problem because there are a number of terrifically intelligent Republicans out there. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think this idea that, you know, somebody said this to me yesterday, it was kind of funny. You know, this idea that the Democrats think that we're right and everybody else is wrong. Uh, a Republican friend of mine said, labeled that as Trumpist. And I thought, you know, that's, that's really interesting, right? So, you know, if, if there was one thing that Donald Trump loved to basically exude, it was, if you agree with me, you're a genius. And if you disagree with me, you're an idiot. Um, that's dangerous on both sides. Um, and that's why uh, in watching those presidential debates last, or whatever we're going to call them, the first one was another one of those S shows or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, Joe Biden is not Bernie Sanders. He's not. Right. He's not AOC. He's not. Um, and he knows the Senate inside and out. He is a confirmed centrist. And that's what the country needs. Now, that's my normative view, right? Um, but he will, you know, I think it's going to be easier for him to bring the left, left, left flank of his own party into line than it will be to bring the Republicans into line. Um, but, you know, that when Joe at the debate said, yeah, and I beat Bernie, right? You know, I, I got the nomination. Right. If you think the Democratic Party is the party of Bernie Sanders, then Bernie would have gotten the nomination, but he didn't. Um, and so I think that um, that's my role is basically, you know, shaking the shit out of the students while bringing them to the center, at least saying you may not believe what I'm telling you about, you know, an opposite view of the policy that you hold dear. But you're sure as hell going to hear those counter arguments. Right. Because if you don't you run the risk of not being fully informed. I'm not going to change your mind. That's not what I'm here to do. I'm not here to do that. I'm here to inform that mind. And sometimes you come a little bit more to the center. Sometimes you hear the counter argument and you believe more fervently, right, in the policy that you believed in when you came into the courts. Um, but that's what I'm talking about is making sure that you're not the center of attention outside of the lecture hall, right? Um, yeah. Because... You're yeah, if you don't, if you don't get, if you don't give the students right a vehicle for sharing their views, um, you shouldn't be in the college classroom. I know that's a strong statement, uh, but I believe that it's not. You know, these courses do not belong to me; they belong to you. Uh, Something I love to hear perspective on um, as an economist again, and is relevant to uh, listeners of this podcast is just your take on. Um, canceling student debt. So I know that's a pretty big discussion topic, um, especially the new Biden administration. Um, and it's definitely an economics question too. It's, yeah, definitely a thing that a lot of students, including myself, worry about and are curious to see where it, how it'll affect our long-term. Okay. All right. So um, I'm going to tell you a small backstory, which is again, kind of, um, I mean, I, you know, I, my language deteriorates when I get really, really either upset or animated, which is 98% of the time. But, you, but you, that's, okay. that's okay. Take this for what, you know, I'm, I, I really, 
Although I'm sure my family would say I'm very good at it. I don't like blowing smoke up my ass. Although sometimes I think it's going to come across as doing so. So I was in graduate school in, at Harvard in the late 80s with C.C. Rouse, who is now the incoming chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. I don't know C.C. particularly well. I mean, we know who each other are. We taught you know, the principal's course together at Harvard as grad students. I haven't seen C.C. in 25 or 30 years. Um, but I got an email from the Biden-Harris advanced team. And they, the advanced team of the Council of Economic Advisors wanted to talk to me about student debt. Okay, and this was, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago. And at my first response was, oh, you must have the wrong person, right? I mean, my name is David Johnson. There, you know, there are actually about two dozen David Johnsons who are economists, right? Um, I also, at one point, was the CEO of the Campbell Soup Company. That's not true, but if it were, I'd certainly be retired in the Caymans by now. Um, so I wrote back and I said, are you sure you want to talk to me? I'm like, yeah, 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 we want to talk to you. So they wanted to talk about student debt. And because this is, you know, it was a confidential call, but because the Biden plan is already out there, they had three things they wanted to know from me. And I said, look, you know, I, I don't, I, I, you know, I'm not completely out of the research arm of this discipline, but I, you know, I'm teaching six, 700 students a semester. So I'm in the classroom. Are you sure I'm coming at this from the education, you know, the more pure teaching part? Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. You know, it's like, okay. They said, you come very highly recommended. I was like, okay, that's probably a lie too, but that's right. Maybe. Um, and they said, well, the first plan is $10,000 uh, debt cancellation across the board, mm -hmm. right? Um, which is basically now, you know, part of the Biden plan. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I said, and this is potentially what cut the conversation a little bit short. I said, well, I'm against that unless it's means tested. Um, and that... Uh, probably was the wrong thing to say, right? And and I said, look, you know, my um, my wife and I have two daughters who will both be going. Uh, one just got accepted last December. One is already at a women's college. They're both going to go to private women's colleges. Um, would if you offered me uh, the opportunity to take on ten thousand dollars in debt for their education and then have it be canceled, I would take it. I, you know, I'm not a, I'm not an idiot, but I don't deserve it. I don't need it. And I shouldn't be eligible for it. Well, I, I think, you know, we talked about a little bit more. And then they said, well, you've given us a lot to think about, which I think was translation for, okay, you know, we're done with you. Uh, <laughs> but, but that's fine. Um, I, I would say a couple of things. And um, my daughter, I, I can't, there's a, another guy who does a podcast who I think is a, a Muslim American who testified before Congress. Um, and I, I, my daughter found this and we watched it last night and he made what I thought was a brilliant point um, is that it would be great if the same regulation that's applied to the banking system and to home mortgages was applied to student debt, right? So most of what gets people into trouble is that we outsource the collection of this debt to for-profit organizations, right? So I have actually, my wife and I have a mortgage there are greater regulations, and we took out that mortgage after the financial crisis, which meant that there were even greater regulations, um, on the bank that we owe that mortgage to in terms of their not being able to do some things that would potentially come back uh, to really harm us if, God forbid, we became in arrears on this mortgage debt. And this gentleman said, why don't we apply those same standards to student debt? I, I think that's a great point. Um, I, I, you know, the first thing I would do is that I would make sure that there's a pretty strong means test, 
to canceling that student debt, right? Which means that if you are, you know, if your adjusted gross income of your family is a certain level, um, and then you should essentially not be eligible for this kind of debt relief. I mean, the, the two points I tried to make with these folks, which I'm sure they already knew, is the moral hazard point, uh, point and the time consistency point, right? So, it, you know, Joe Biden's going to be president for four years. After that, nobody knows. So if, if this policy goes through and you take on the proverbial S load of additional debt, knowing that some of it will be canceled, right? And a Republican wins in 2024 and that gets reversed. I, I, I'm not certain you're going to be particularly happy. Now we would hope that they'd be grandfathered, but you know, that, um, and the moral hazard part is that, is this, you know, kind of promise of cancellation or easing of some of these repayment schedules? Uh, encouraging you to inefficiently take on more debt. Um, I, I don't, I, I would like to ask a more existential question, which is, and this gets me in trouble, but I get in trouble a lot. Um, is it still the case that every single man and woman, or, you know, and, and every single person graduating from high school can benefit in the long term from a four year college degree? Um, I think existentially, the answer to that is no. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a big believer in the junior college system, in the community college system, in the idea that, you know, let, suppose we decided that instead of, you know, well, in addition to dealing with the debt that you have right now, we were going to concentrate, and this would be somewhat of a hybrid of the Bernie Sanders plan, and it's a hybrid with something that former Governor Scott Walker of Wisconsin wanted to do which is to talk about heavily subsidizing the first year or two of your post-secondary graduation. Mm -hmm. And wherever you decide to take that, if you go to UW-Madison, that's great. If you go to MATC, that's fantastic. If you go to a community college or a trade school or whatever you do, um, and then after that, we look at whether that two-year college becomes a four-year college or you decide, therefore, um, that it's a good fit for you. Um, but I, I think I would say the same thing about home mortgages. Do I really think that owning a home continues to be part of the American dream? I think that's another existential question that we should ask of people in their 20s and 30s, right? Mm -hmm. Are you better off in the long term by not getting into a mortgage than by getting into one? Um, so that generally, those questions are generally perceived as my telling you that, um, uh, I, you know, I, I, I think that you should pay it all back because you're going to get a college degree and it's going to be very beneficial for your career. Um, that's not necessarily what I'm saying in every case. I'm saying that on a case-by-case -case basis, I think we need to ask ourselves, right, what are the best ways to get the best fit between the high school graduate and what he or she is interested in doing at the college level. Um, I do understand, what's interesting to me is that I expected in this, uh, testif this um, testimony this person was ha giving in front of the House uh, Education Committee, I guess, I expected the numbers to be worse than they were, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like adjusted for inflation, there's been a, you know, uh, a doubling of tuition costs. Uh, so he, was, he was looking at what tuition was like when all of the people on that panel, the Congress people, went to college. Mm -hmm. And I would have thought that it would have been a much higher number percent increase than it was. 
Um, but it's still definitely burdensome. It's definitely onerous. Um, but I think you, we need to ask ourselves to take, we, well, we need to challenge ourselves to take a much longer view on this mm -hmm. um, and, and say that, you know, we, we don't want you to be crushed um, under these debt burdens, but we also want it to be a, a question of whether it's absolutely in your best interest to get in that kind of debt, that much debt, that early on. Um, there's another thing that I brought up with these folks that they clearly knew about, which is what um, I, I would have you look long and hard at what Mitch Daniels, who's the former governor of Indiana, is doing as the president of Purdue. Uh, and this is something that um, that a lot of other institutions, I, you can ask Becky Bl Chancellor Blank whether this is something that comes up in discussions you know, between her and the Board of Regents, which is trading off uh, financial aid for payment of the graduates well into the future, right? So we're now, um, so Purdue is running their financial aid such that they're becoming as much of a lender uh, as a granting institution. So now they're entering into these programs where you get a degree from Purdue and you pay back, right? Um, that financial aid over a much longer time frame. Um, and what they're doing is they're trying to certainly entice more students by making it more affordable. And they're also tying some of those repayments to your income. Mm -hmm. So that if you, you know, the, the classic one is that, you know, you take on a lot of debt, but you get an economics degree. That's okay. You get an economics degree, you go to Wall Street, you make, you know, a ton of money, you can pay it back. Um, that's not always true. It's also not always efficient that, you know, I bristle at the idea that what we want to do in this department is, you know, create everyone who's going to go to Goldman Sachs or, you know, or to uh, JP Morgan Chase or to Merrill Lynch. Um, but if you're getting a degree from an institution and you want to go into social work, you want to go into publishing, you want to go into the nonprofit sector, which an enormous number of economics graduates go into, um, that you're not going to start at a six-figure salary, which means I think we have to take a much longer view without, um, you know, just, just deciding um, that, you know, oh, well, that's this big debt, we'll just go ahead and cancel it. Um, so I, I think there are, um, you know, and that's, you know, I, I tend to come down pretty hard on ideas, um, which sound a little bit, or statements that sound a little bit facile. Mm -hmm. um, in 2016, the demographic that went for Bernie Sanders more than any other was yours. Right. The 18 to 25s, you know, well, Bernie was telling you that he was going to give you four years at a public institution for no tuition. I mean, I, no offense. I mean, I, I'm not saying that you're all, you know, idiots. Right. But if someone told me as a 20 year old that I could go to college for free, I, you know, um, I, you know, I might support Attila the Hun for president. If that's what, you know, uh, again, I, I'm not taking anything away from Bernie. I'm just saying that as economists, um, we take a, I would say, a, a much more dispassionate view. Mm -hmm. uh, do I want everyone to own a home? Do I want everyone to have a college degree? Do I want to have a car and a boat? And, you know, and, and I don't want to be, as I said, I don't want to be you know, snippy about it. But we have to ask ourselves, you know, what, what are we getting in return? Do I think it is a good investment for the federal government to subsidize higher education? I do. Does the research show me that? It does. Um, but it's a question, of course, right, of, you know, of the quantitative. The qualitative is there. We already subsidize higher education. But the federal government does much less of it, right, 
you know, than state and local governments. That's certainly true for secondary education as well. But this idea that we're going to bring, that we're going to cast a little bit of a wider regulatory net on debt markets, not just the mortgage market, but a little bit more uh, the student debt market, mm-hmm. um, that has legs. Uh, and I'm, I'm relatively certain, you know, that C.C. Rouse and the folks at the CEA are going to be running those numbers and they're going to be coming up, um, you know, with different proposals. Um, but now I think, you know, it's easy to put in in two pages of bill that, you know, you get a $10,000 relief. Um, but, you know, the, if you looked at the demographics of who that's going to, um, there are going to be people, as I said, in, in my, you know, my wife and I are both full-time employees of this institution. We are safely in the upper quintile of the U.S. income distribution. We should not be eligible for this relief. Um, and, you know, that, and I'm telling you that as someone who would benefit from it. So, you know, um, but I think those are, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. And kind of, um, it's a little bit of a switch from what we've been talking about, but kind of along the same lines um, of what you were saying, kind of about how not everyone should go to college for the society to work at its most efficient manner. Um, What do you think about the possibility of any universal based income if the United States would ever get to that point of needing it and kind of how that would work best? Sure. So, um, I'm a big fan of the UBI. Um, I am not, uh, again, um, I, I would, I'm just going to means test everything, right? I would, I would means test social security. I would means test Medicare. Um, I, you know, we ha- it's funny on the healthcare side, we have a program that is means tested. That would be Medicaid. Uh, but any 65 year old person from Warren Buffett, you know, <laughs> on down is going to be eligible for Medicare. Um, I, I think, um, you know, so I think it's important to have a little bit of a history lesson. The universal basic income um, is a policy that goes all the way back to Milton Friedman, you know, 30, 40 years ago. It's not new. It's not. And, and again, I, I, I always come across as a little bit, I don't know, snippy or uh, catty in saying that um, it bothers me when people think the UBI was Andrew Yang's policy. Well, it, it's not uh-huh. his policy. You know, I, I understand that. This is the Andrew Yang policy. It's not, we're not going to say, let's get off the possessive, right? Um, it's just not, right? Um, no more than Newton owns the law of gravity, for Christ's sake. So it's not um, Andrew Yang's policy, but, and I think it was called the Freedom Dividend or what it, the Eagle Fund, whatever pithy name we had for it. Um, I shouldn't get it. Uh, my wife shouldn't get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the idea of granting someone a universal basic income is, uh, is the idea that we are, you know, what we're doing is we're trying to make sure that you have uh, enough kind of assistance and subsistence, uh, you know, to kind of live your life. And what we're trying not to do is being a little bit too paternalistic and saying that, um, we want you to go to college. So instead of a UBI, we're going to subsidize your education. We want you, uh, you know, to be able to live in the inner city. So instead of giving you UPI, we're going to give you a housing subsidy, right? We would much rather say, based on your preferences, here is a check um, and you use it for whatever you think is the best, you know, possible outcome for how you want to live your life and where you see yourself going forward. 
So most of the libertarians I talk to love the UBI, not necessarily because they want governments to hand out checks, but because they are consistently baffled by the number of different and sometimes overlapping federal, state, and local anti-poverty programs that each come with, you know, a little bit of admin over the, you know, uh, you know, you know, off the top and, and much more kind of, you know, forms to fill out and people to see. And, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things where every time you hear a State of the Union address, the president will say, well, we cut out red tape. We saved $6 trillion, right? Everybody says that. But there is a tremendous amount of, of this that can be saved by deciding that it is going to be universal and by universal. And we have a little bit um, of a petri dish on this in terms of what we did with these benefits during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So the extra $600 checks or the extra you know, unemployment checks, those were federally funded, right? And they were, if you'll pardon the expression, universal. They were across the board. And when the research, and I know Cece specifically is a labor economist, and they're going to do really hard numbers on this to try and figure out who spent it, who saved it, and what the hell they did with it, Right. So the, the first idea from a macro standpoint is a lot of the people who really didn't need that, right, yeah. socked it away, right, whether they put it in the stock market or the bank or whatever, right? And that's not a particularly good way to stimulate the economy if you're trying to think about multiplied effects as a macroeconomist, right? The other thing is that we can see where that money went to understand how many people used it for healthcare or used it for childcare or used it for education. Um, and that is... It's a much more, I hate to say it, universally, um, you know, uh, positive policy to let people decide rather than kind of almost deciding for them. So replacing this kind of laundry list of benefits with something that is more universal and not state specific. So run the numbers on state unemployment benefits and look at the fact that state unemployment, unemployment benefits are not universal. And the numbers in terms of people of color and diversity and how individual states treat those populations, they're pretty sobering. Um, and that's what I'm saying. If, if, that, if, if we kind of expose some of these incredible inequalities while we're simultaneously having a discussion on a policy that might both um, help keep people out of poverty as well as address those inequities and inequalities, you know, we, we rarely in economics get a win-win situation like that. And so I, it, it's, a, it's an opportunity that is something that comes out of a pandemic and, you know, a transition of presidential power uh, and a transition, you know, to having one party in control of both executive and legislative branches. And, you know, everybody says they have 100 days. Well, they basically have two years, right? They have until the midterms in 2022. Um, and you know, everyone, you know, go big, go big. The times wants go big. They should go big. I, you know, I, I, that kind of talk right to me is the best way uh, of getting nothing done. Um, you know, we need, we need some more data points, right. And we get data points by moving the needle. If you're pardon the expression by thinking at the margin, right. By deciding that we're going to, you know, um, and if the baby step is too small, then we take another baby step. Um, but the idea that we're going to have all of these benefits extended well into the foreseeable future, um, you know, uh, my wife tolerates a lot from me and she's reading in the times about, um, 
you know, the Times wants the extension of these unemployment benefits to track the unemployment rate. And one of the first lessons I'll give to the people in 102 is that the unemployment rate, uh, if you pardon the expression, is a shitty statistic because it only tracks people in the labor force. If you drop out of the labor force, you're no longer counted in the unemployment rate. And the people that are dropping out of the labor force now in droves, I hate to say it, Ashlyn, are women, right? And we could, after this whole thing is over, we could actually find ourselves regressing in terms of opportunities for women in the labor force because when a pandemic hits, and, and I'm not saying this as a sexist pig, when the pandemic hits and the kids all come home, right? The decision is that the wife, you know, gives up her job or goes part-time or whatever. So we're, we're falling, I think, back into these um, inefficient stereotypes. But if you're going to tell me about the health of the labor market, I want to know the unemployment rate, I want to know the labor force participation rate, and I want to know the employment to population ratio. And unless you give me all three of those, then I'm not going to have a discussion on macro labor markets with you. So everybody loves to talk about the unemployment rate. But it can go down for the wrong reason. When people drop out of the labor force, the unemployment rate goes down. It can go up for the right reason that people re-enter the labor force because they're feeling better about you know the health of the economy going forward. Um, but again, that you know I, I'm putting on my kind of 102 hat because it is a very very simple, absolute basic simple 102 uh, problem set is to talk about those three metrics. You can find them on the Bureau of Labor Statistics website. You can algebraically talk about how they're interrelated. It doesn't take a calculus derivation to do that. Um, but ask yourself, right, what's happening to labor force participation along with the unemployment rate. Um, but that, again, I think that is a tremendous opportunity to really, you know, you as they say, pithily and stupidly, you don't know what you got until it's gone, right? There's a song lyric in there somewhere. So if we get, you know, if we get lower participation rates of women, that's, that would be a huge disaster as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. um, and when you've got CC Rouse at the CEA and Janet Yellen at the treasury, I guarantee you that though that they will not let that happen, or they certainly, you know, will make sure that it's discussed at every cabinet meeting. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Kind of a general question. Um, so I think it's really easy to talk about reasons to be pessimistic um, as a young person in the United States. Um, but if you were one of us, um, what are some reasons that you think we should be optimistic right now? Okay. Um, so the first will be something that, if not, it doesn't get me in trouble, but people basically think it's really kind of overblown. Um, in the last, I mean, I, I continue to get older. So I used to say in the last 20 years, now it's in the last 40 years, um, the, the forces of globalization and trade and technology uh, have brought more people out of abject poverty in the world than any other combination of forces, I think, in recorded history. Um, so one of the things that you know might surprise you, it always surprises me, is that if you looked at a time graph of kind of world income per person and time, um, it, it would be like, uh, you know, up until basically like maybe kind of the late 17, early 1800s, mid 1800s. It, it's like, it's just like a total flat line. 
right? You know, you, you get, you get this impression that, you know, it really, you know, it really must have sucked to live, you know, in the, I mean, you know, within reason, of course. And then you get to things like the industrial revolution and you get to things like now the IT revolution and you get to things like, um, you know, the kind of, uh, yeah, the end of the cold war, how shall I put it? The, the idea that, that markets are, and, you know, kind of market-based economies are a greater, you know, generator of wealth than government controlled economies. Now that's not true in every case, markets do fail. And we talk about that in 101 and 102. Um, but those combined forces, um, you know, and it depends on how you look at global poverty, a dollar a day, $2 a day. If I go from living on a dollar a day to living on 250 a day, I am not on easy street. I get that. Okay. But mm. those kind of poverty metrics, um, both have gone down dramatically and we've seen dramatic reversals of those in the past 18 months. So I think the real question and over the past, you know, two or three or four years, um, I'm one of the things that bothers me about, you know, political correctness is that I'm always wrong. I, I'm always behind the eight ball when it comes to understanding what it means to say that you're a globalist, right? Mm -hmm. So when some people on the Republican side refer to someone as the globalist, there is, there is a, an, an anti-Semitic undercurrent there, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I, you know, that bothers me, but I, I, I would say that I'm a globalist because I believe in globalization. I am not anti-Semitic, so maybe I'm not a globalist. So when you think of someone as being nationalist, right? When you're, when you're nationalist, it generally, you know, you're, yeah, you're sliding down into being a white supremacist because if you're nationalist, you know, you want immigration such that nobody else gets in. Um, so to me, the big problem with being a nationalist is that you are turning your back on forces for good. It's not perfect. I understand that. Um, but the opening up of markets, specifically markets in countries that were tremendously, I don't want to say nationalist, but self-sufficient or inward looking. Um, yes, the Chinas and the Indias of the world, but more importantly now, uh, the countries in South America or in Southeast Asia, Vietnam and places that you wouldn't necessarily think um, are tremendous success stories while still having, you know, communist parties in government, in, you know, in the governance part of those countries. And I think that um, that is a reason to be tremendously optimistic. But if you... Um, I've never been one. I don't like talking about myself. I don't like exporting American culture. I don't like deciding that, you know, it's like, you know, be like Mike, Michael Jordan or whatever, you know, be like me as an American. No, no. So we can export the philosophy of, you know, markets can create wealth tremendously well. Markets aren't particularly good at distributing that wealth right? We can export our philosophy as Americans. But the idea, again, that if you copy us, you're great. And if you don't, you're pieces of crap, I think is not something that I espouse. Um, I talk a lot in 101 and 102 about Denmark, because it's always Bernie Sanders' favorite country, right? And, you know, the idea that people, you know, we don't want to be a Denmark. And I'll ask the students in 101, well, now, why not? Right? You know what, you know, and some people now will say, well, we don't want to be a Denmark because it's not a particularly diverse country in terms of ethnicities. 
That's true. It is absolutely true. That doesn't make the people in Denmark bad people. But most people tell me they don't want to be Denmark because the taxes are too high. Right? Oh, my God. The taxes are tremendously high there. Yeah. And what's their GDP per capita? It's not $12.50. And what do they get for those taxes? They get K-12 education. They get cradle-to-grave health care. They get retirement. Right? It's a different ethic. But the idea that we're going to reject Denmark because the tax rates are incredibly high. One, one kid in office hours really went after me on this. And I said, well, here's a phrase you rarely ever hear. The Danish boat person, right? They're getting in boats and they're all coming to the States because Denmark. No, no, I've never seen that, right? I guarantee you. Um, that when you say, well, I'm not going to move to Denmark because the taxes are too high. I guarantee you the Danish people are like, that's fine. You, you go ahead and stay, you know, stay in your own country. Um, but I think that's one of the roles of any, I don't want to say quality educator, right? Is to set the stage and to basically set the table and say to you as a student, um, here are what markets can do. And not everything has to be, you know, another thing I try to introduce you to in 101 and 102 is the color gray, right? It exists, okay? You know, it's like, well, either markets are great or they suck. No, right? That is a tremendous oversimplification. But do I think that I can talk about uh, a reliance on market forces as a better way of getting to universal healthcare coverage, as a better way of getting a cleaner planet? Yes, I absolutely do. Um, and that, and as I said to you, when I talk to the environmental groups, I'm talking, not surprisingly, to people from the left, right? Most environmentalists out there are going to be voting, if they're in the United States, for Joe Biden. They're not going to be voting for Donald Trump. So the idea that they're now, that I can talk to them about a Milton Friedman-based idea, right, that would help, you know, the environmental situation. They're like, well, I'm not supposed to agree with anything Milton Friedman says, so you're really going to have to convince me. That's fine. I, you know, I'm, I'm happy to try and convince you. But what I want to do is I want to take those labels away, right? I want to take the conservative liberal label away from that positive economics. And that, I think, is the role of any high-quality education, such as we hope that you're getting at this lovely institution, is that we're not, and it's easy, believe me, it is easy for me to fall into that mosh pit of telling you what to think. Um, that's bad. I'm never going to do that. I'm going to teach you how to think. And then I'm going to ask you for your opinion. Uh, and that, to me, if I, if I ever sink back, you know, or, well, hopefully I've never been there, but if I sink into that idea that I'm trying to create 400 clones of myself in terms of how I think about economics and social policy, then it's time to retire. Um, because this is... Um, I, I do think that, as I said, this has been a really dark time in American politics. Mm -hmm. Um, it's been very bizarre for me to witness. Um, I, you know, I, I am, I can understand, you know, the, the, the demographic probably that put Donald Trump in the office more than any other were kind of my demographic, white males, kind of 55 to 63. Um, and in many ways, not the only one, I mean, you know, white women had a lot to do with Donald Trump getting elected. I understand that I'm not a political scientist, but, um, I think there's a lot of fear there. I think if you're, 
you know, you have a manufacturing job that goes overseas or it goes away and you're 57 and your skills are no longer in particularly high demand. Um, that's, that's scary. That's petrifying. And if I come in and tell you that I'm going to give those manufacturing jobs back and I'm going to build that economic wall as opposed to the wall, the southern border wall, I'm going to build that economic wall around the country. Uh, that's very enticing. Um, I think you guys, your generation, um, you know, it, it's funny. I was 11 years old when Richard Nixon resigned the presidency. Um, you guys probably now, correct me if I'm wrong, were barely born when the towers went down on 9-11. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, there's not much that you kind of haven't seen, even though you didn't see that. You certainly saw the aftermath of that in Iraq and Afghanistan and going after bin Laden and all that stuff. You've now lived through the Trump presidency. And I guess, um, uh, and my daughters are this way. It's incredible to see. They're much more realistic, right? You know, my uncle, you know, Richard Nixon might as well have been Attila the Hunt, right? He was the devil. My uncle was so upset by, you know, by Watergate. And I remember at the time thinking, okay, so the guy's somewhat of a megalomaniac. He did something really stupid, but nobody died, right? You know, like, you know, and, and that's kind of what, um, what your generation thinks about. Certainly 9-11, people died. The pandemic, people died. I'm not making those false equivalences. But I think the fact that you have seen so much um, is, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of trial by fire. Uh -huh. uh, but I, if I'm you and I'm your age, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. You're, you're, there's not much now in American politics that you're going to be surprised by. Um, you know, I, I, I will say this without trying to be inappropriate. Um, I kept thinking today as I watched before I came here, I watched that inauguration and I watched Mike Pence come down and take his seat. And I was reminded uh, of what evidently Donald Trump said to him on the 6th of January that he could either do the right thing and be a patriot or not do the right thing and be another P word, right? That we often use to describe a kitty cat, which I will not, you know, share with you. Um, and I kept thinking of that line because as far as I'm concerned, that is exactly what I would have told now ex-president Trump about not attending the inauguration. You can either attend and be a patriot or you can not attend and be that other P word. And it kept going through my mind, right? That I, whether you support the president, the ex now ex-president Donald Trump or not, I don't care about that. I'm gonna teach Donald Trump supporters starting this semester. I teach them every single semester or whoever you know, the lead Republican is. Um, but I want you to think about the statement that is made um, about not attending that inauguration, not being able to mouth the name of the next president. And maybe that doesn't matter to you because you're a realist and you're 22 years old. But that to me makes a statement. And if that's the last statement that's made by Donald Trump as the outgoing president of the United States, I will remember that. I think you will remember that. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I'm not in the business of trying to figure out what Donald Trump wants to be remembered for. Quite frankly, I'm going to be dead in 50 years and that's probably a waste of my time. Uh, but <laughs> but I, I, I do think that there are opportunities for you in this day and age. Um, I don't think that social media is everywhere kind of, you know, evil. I do think it can be evil, but I also think it can be a tremendous source uh, for good. Um, I, I think that, you know, you guys are more likely now to 
You know, consider things like the Peace Corps or AmeriCorps or something, you know, more community service-based. Um, and again, I, I, I would wish that that, that that kind of newfound optimism weren't generated by 400,000 deaths in a global pandemic. But, you know, to take one of the more memorable quotes from now ex-President Trump, it is what it is. <laughs> so we, we, we can't reverse that. Um, but I think just in terms of um, even the vaccine rollout, right, you know, are, are we looking at, um, look at the educational possibilities. How many people are afraid of taking this vaccine? Not just in the United States, but across the planet, still thinking that vaccines in and of themselves are evil. Uh, the the anti-vaxxers are having a field day with COVID-19 vaccine. Look at how many vaccines are going to predominantly wealthier populations, predominantly white communities versus communities of color. As far as I'm concerned, my friends, these are opportunities for you, right? They're not the kind of data points that you want, but they're data points all the same. And you can basically, you know, we so many things have been laid bare by this pandemic, right? That we can no longer run away from these inequities and from these inequalities. We can decide we're not gonna do something about them. Okay, I, I don't, I'm not in that camp, but we can no longer ignore them. And that, my friends, that's a real possibility. And I'm hoping that you don't squander it. I know you won't squander it because you're, you're not gonna need any more convincing, right? If, if a global pandemic, you know, such as has existed in the United States where we are not the leader, right? It's been an embarrassment as to how we've responded to this pandemic, right? But for you, it is the ultimate teachable moment. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm gonna continue to do this, you know, as long as my brain stays healthy, because I seriously believe that you wanna be, you know, uh, a force for good, that you wanna be agents of change. And that is always one of the first thing that comes out of my mouth in one-on-one any semester. I'm trying to make you better global citizens. Um, and in that respect, I don't give a shit who you vote for, um, because if, if it's the if it's the positive economics, if it's the data, if it's the policies themselves, if it's the theories and the concepts, um, then you're not. It won't be four more years of alternative facts, which is really let's 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 decide what alternative facts are. Right. Mm -hmm. Facts that fit my worldview. Those are facts. Facts that don't fit my worldview. Those are alternative facts. Stop treating me like an idiot. I understand what you mean by that phrase. Right. Um, and that that is what I'm hoping that we're going to get beyond. Um, and that's why, if I were you, I would be optimistic because there isn't a whole lot in the last 18 months. I, I, imagine going through the past 18 months for you or now I guess it's only 12 months. It seems like longer to me. Um, not, there's not a whole hell of a lot more. Uh, you've seen. Um, I mean, what have you seen? You've seen an attack on the U.S. Capitol. You've seen. Um, you know, the death of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, you've seen the Black Lives Matter protests, you've seen a white person, uh, you know, saying, we're glad you're here shooting up people in Kenosha. I mean, I, I don't really, I, I don't know what else we can kind of do to your generation, right, that hasn't already been done before. Um, and that's, um, you know, that's what makes me optimistic. Is that I don't, you know, the I, I I say a lot of what I think are stupid things in lecture, but I, I like to make sure you know what uh, what the first step of the twelve happens to be, which is recognizing that you have a problem, right? Now, I'm not suggesting that I'm a recovering alcoholic, uh, <laughs> but you know, but but I but I'm saying that 
I think you're ready for step two, right? I, I, you know, I, I don't really think there's anything else, right, that we can kind of expose this generation to. Uh, and that, that's what I think makes me hopeful. Um, my daughters are much more political junkies than I ever was at 16, 17, 18. Well, our elder daughter's 20 now, but um, I, I don't remember, you know, I, I remember watching Richard Nixon resign because we were on vacation and my mother made us watch the president. I was like, yeah, you know, I don't want to, it was August, you know, it's like we're, my brother and I are throwing the Frisbee and my mother's like, you have to come in, the president's speaking. I was like, oh, you know, I mean, I didn't do that. But, you know, it's like, I get out, you know. And my mother said, no, this is history. Um, and bless my mother's heart, I remember watching that in some sort of state park in Indiana, because I grew up in Cincinnati and we were not, you know, essentially we weren't wealthy enough that we went on airplanes for vacations. Mm -hmm. And I, re I remember Richard Nixon resigning the presidency. I remember the sweat on his upper lip I, distinctly. I was 11 years old. Um, but I, I think the fact that by hook or crook, you people are much more informed um, than I ever was. I didn't grow up with social media. I didn't grow up with a personal computer. Um, and that, as I said, that is what keeps me coming back to the classroom uh, because I know that you show up every single day uh, saying, uh, well, what do I do now? Uh, my favorite email from a student in 2016, I was here uh, on November 5th or whatever, um, with a day after Trump won the election. And he emailed me and said, okay, now what? That was all, that was all he emailed, right? You know, now what, right? And I was like, well, you know, he, here's what you cannot do, right? And I said this to every single student I had in 2016. And I was teaching 101 and 302. So I was teaching intermediate macro at the time, which is a great time. I mean, it's lovely to teach principles macro when, you know, Joe Biden is sending major Keynesian policies to the Hill. Excellent. Um, and I said, here's what you cannot do. And I believe a lot of people actually did this, even in my generation is, you know, just go Rip Van Winkle for four years from 2016 to now, or become an ostrich, you know, stick your head in the sand, right? You know, you know wake me when it's over. Um, that's a mistake. Um, and thankfully, your generation didn't do that uh, nearly as much as my generation did. Um, and I, I, would, I would welcome the fact, right, that those people who did not storm the Capitol but are still upset that Joe Biden is a new president, they're not going to stick their head in the sand either. And that's good, right? Because those are the debates that we need to be having. Mm -hmm. um, and we bring them to the table and we have those reasoned debates. Um, the late John McCain had the best line in the first two years of the Trump presidency before he passed away. My friends, we're getting nothing done, right? On the floor of the Senate, he said, we're, we're getting nothing done. And he's right. And he's a Republican or was. Um, you know, I, I, I'm ready to get something done. My, my sense is that you're ready to get something done. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's interesting because I had only lived 21, 22 years. It's, it's hard to understand the gravity of some of these, how you perceive as historical events. Um, so your take that kind of seeing something, seeing a few things that are terrible kind of from the get-go will set the stage for us um, going forward. Um, that's great. I agree. To I yeah. agree. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're, you're not, you know, it's, let me tell you this, my friend. It is, I, I would understand. I'm not going to support it. It would make me sad. But mm -hmm. becoming jaded for your generation is a lot easier than it was for mine, yeah. right? Yeah, I watched Nixon resign, but then I, you know, I lived through the energy crisis and Ronald Reagan becoming president and, you know, a couple of oil shocks. Um, I had an extraordinarily sheltered childhood, right? I was not exposed to any of the stuff that you've been exposed to. Uh, not necessarily you're not children now, obviously, because you're in your late teens and 20s. Um, but I, I would, 
do you, would you have an opportunity to become jaded? Would I understand that you become jaded? Yes, I'm hoping that you don't. But I certainly would understand and appreciate that, um, you know, there are, you know, I call them in 101 kind of the WTF moments, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. right? You know, you, you, know you, you get the WTF moments pretty much every day, right? I, I, didn't, get them nearly, I didn't get them nearly as frequently, right, <laughs> when I was your age. Um, but, I, you know, I think, you know, again, you, you can engage um, or you can sit back and, um, you know, watch your favorite news program. That's one of the interesting things that, that Joe put into the speech today. You know, maybe you don't get your news sources from the same people. I thought that was a really kind of, it was a slip, you know, obviously it was the speechwriter that put that in there, right? But I thought it was a really, you know, you're either a Fox News or you're a CNN, right? So, you know, um, and I do think that's dangerous. And I kind of think that that's why it is more important now for you to be centrists um, than ever before. Which is not to say that you, you know, can be a centrist and still vote consistently Democrat or consistently Republican. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Just make sure that you're at least willing to sit down and talk to the other side. Um, and boy, there's been precious little of that in the last four years. Yeah, I think certainly there's been a lot going on. Um, and as you said, some people could get jaded from that. But I also hope that a lot of People in my generation see that as an opportunity for change where it kind of exposes the flaws and we take it that route instead of the more jaded route. And I've seen a lot of that so far. So I'd say I'm pretty optimistic, especially after hearing (laughs) all of your suggestions and your tips. I I also think I'm, I'm, um, I really come out against labeling. Um, I I don't, um, you know, I'm, I'm a registered independent. Um, and the reason I'm a registered independent that I get to vote in both primaries, you know, I just kind of like voting. So I don't, I don't really, I don't really, you know, smart. everyone should be. Yeah, yeah. Right. You know, that Donald Trump would love me. I would love to vote 18 times for him. Uh, not really, but, um, so I, that, that is, I think, um, you know, when, when, you know, I used to talk to my grandmother about some of these things and she said, you know, I, I worry that kids are growing up too fast. That was always something that grandmother said a lot. And you're, you know, the innocence of childhood. Uh, and I've often thought about that phrase. I don't necessarily think, um, I think your innocence can still be age related, um, even though it's not necessarily an innocence that shields you from kind of negative things that shields you from bad acts and bad actors. Um, and, and that's why I think it's, you know, um, I, I, I teach 101 generally when there are people here, not just me, um, at, at 825 on Monday and Wednesday. And I think I said this to Nick, you know, uh, last week that, um, you know, 300 people, you know, 400 people in Bascom will show up at 825 on a Monday morning. Um, that is an incredible opportunity for me, right? And it, it makes a statement. And the statement is, I don't know this shit. I need to know this shit. And this person's going to help me understand it. Um, and I think that it's incumbent upon me to say, um, as I said to Nick last week, I could turn you all into Marxists, right? I, I could, you know, I could, you know, you could come out saying, wow, that Stalin guy, boy, he really, he really had it right. Um, I know I'm, I, I'm not going to do that. Right. But I'm also 
not going to have you come out of the course saying, you know, that Ronald Reagan, boy, those were the days. And even though there's some things about what Reagan did that I wholeheartedly support it, right? I, you're going to come out of this course saying, um, I may, and I say this a lot too, I want to leave you with more questions than answers. But out of this course, you will know what questions to ask of yourself. And you'll be equipped enough to answer that question for yourself. And you're also going to have answers that aren't going to be there. Jesus, I don't know. Fine. That's an, that's an evolutionary process. Education never ends. I'm learning as much from you in these courses as you're hopefully learning from me. Because I didn't grow up, right, um, you know, in, you know, an inauguration two weeks after a, a siege on the U.S. Capitol, for God's sake, mm -hmm. right? I didn't grow up with that. Um, and, the, you know, I said to Nick last week, I've been teaching the same stuff for 30 years, right? I, I, you know, as I said, you know, people are somewhat amazed that I can teach these courses basically without notes, without slides. Well, you know, I, I like to say that there are different buttons on my back. So whatever topic you want, there's a button there. You just hit that button and out spews 45 minutes on whatever the hell the topic is. But the reason it's never going to be the same for me, even though it's supply and demand and taxes and elasticity and deadweight laws, is that you guys are different, right? Your, you know, your students, you're 18 years old now in 2021. Uh, it's a different experience for you and therefore a different experience for me. And I have to remind myself of that constantly because if, if I, you know, slip back into the idea that, oh, well, you know, it's just the same old, same old, um, then it won't be as rich of an experience for you. Um, and, and part of the reason why I want you to come to office hours and say, well, what do you think? Is that I have no idea what you're thinking because I, I have no, I, I don't have that kind of empathy. I didn't grow up with these kind of events that you're witnessing. And I can understand and appreciate that you would go, you know, in any kind of polarized direction. Um, and that I think is part, I get, you know, I get asked a lot, you know, how to be a good teacher. And I, I really think, I, I know there's no recipe. I, the first thing I will tell all of my TAs or anyone who wants to talk about teaching is that um, never stop being a student. Um, if, I, if I, the time I stop being a student is the time I should give up teaching. Because then I become the kind of, you know, um, the sage on stage is the way the Harvard people always used to put it. Because it had to rhyme. Uh, <laughs> such bullshit. Um, it, it, when, when I'm in a situation where I give the impression, um, one of my students at Stanford, uh, I was advising her. She was an undergraduate. And she, uh, so unfortunately, I got lots of stories and my stream of consciousness, you know, meter is way into the red now, given my age. But she came in one day and I can't remember what the, it was an upper level economics course that she was dying to take. And I'm going to drop, you know, it's corporate finance or, you know, game theory, something like that. It was one of those topics. I was like, oh my God, you're dropping that course. You know, you've been talking about this for a year and a half. And she said, well, I went to the first lecture. <clears throat> and she said in the first 15 minutes, it was, the, the professor gave us the clear indication that there was nothing that he could learn from us. I've never forgotten that. And she said, I'm gone, I'm, I'm out. Um, and I, I hear that voice, uh, Rini Mukherjee, I don't know what she's doing now, she's probably on Wall Street somewhere, but I hear Rini's voice in the back of my head every time I go into the first lecture in the 101, right? Which is, uh, what can I learn from you? And I know it sounds really kind of, you know, you know WTF for the student. Yeah. 
as to why, you know, you've been doing this for so long and you know it much better than we do. Well, I hope so because I'm teaching it to you. Um, but I, I think that is the educational process itself never ends. Mm -hmm. And um, the strange thing for me is that you guys are always the same age and I get older, right? Mm -hmm. So the gap now, so you now come to office hours and, you know, I was an undergrad at Princeton and they'll say, oh, you know, my dad went to Princeton. Oh, what year did he graduate? Well, he graduated five years after I did. It's like, oh my God, right? So now your father is five years younger than I am. Holy <laughs> shit. Um, but that, I, I think that's the part, it, that's the part that, that continues to keep me coming back is that it, you show me. Uh, and I know Nick, you know, asked this question last week and I get asked a lot, you know, this is, you know, I've taught at Duke, I've taught at Stanford, I've taught at Harvard, I've taught at Wellesley College, I'm now teaching at UW-Madison. And I really, it, I, I'm going to say it's all the same in a good way, right? You show me 400 people who show up at 825 on a Monday morning ready to say, all right, I'm here, right? you know, how do I learn this stuff? And I'll be there. And I don't, I think the differences among students at these institutions is much smaller than you think. Um, you know, it's, you know, is, is Harvard different from Wisconsin? Yes, in some ways bad and in many ways good. <laughs> but that, that's just kind of my perspective. Um, but I, I love the fact that this is uh, a tremendously successful public institution in the Midwestern United States where we do serious work and yet we don't take ourselves too seriously. We don't, I don't feel like I need to go to the top of the mountain and beat my chest. Um, I know who my supervisors are. I know that they're supporting the work that I'm doing and I wanna get the work done. I don't wanna talk about the pandemic anymore. I mean, unless it relates to these economic policies that we're talking about, right? I wanna get at it and I wanna get after it. And that, you know, you as a collective student body need to understand that I take as much inspiration from you as hopefully I'm giving to you. Um, and that, um, you know, when it works that way, it's, it's magic. It, it really, I, I'm not being maudlin. It is, you know, um, it is the ultimate rush. And one of the reasons um, I'm a dinosaur because I, you know, this is my blackboard, right? I, I don't bring down the slide. I don't talk at the podium. I don't use a PowerPoint slide. Um, I'm a dinosaur that uses chalk. Um, and the reason I use chalk is that um, when I observe PowerPoint lectures, the professor is actually lecturing to people's throats, right? You're, you're, you're not looking at them this way. You're looking at an Adam's apple, right? Because everyone, I'm talking to you and you're looking at the screen, right? If there's a book I'm ever gonna write one day, the title will be, don't teach until you can see the whites of their eyes. <laughs> I have to, and that's the biggest downside to the pandemic is that I can't, now I'm staring at this little stupid green dot. Mm -hmm. um, I can't see how you respond to my telling you that I'm in favor of a living wage and I'm against the minimum wage that I'm in favor of low-income housing, I'm against rent control. And that's not just for shock value on the first day. It's to say, I need to see how many of your countenances change dramatically. And you're like, wow, I really wanna like this guy, but he's against the minimum wage. Yeah, but I would replace it 
with an expansion of the earned income tax credit. And if you don't know why that might make sense, then you need to keep sitting in that chair for the rest of the semester because <laughs> that's where we're going. Um, and that, you know, I, I think it's, I'm not a big fan of value, of course, evaluations for that reason, mm -hmm. because they're too centered on me. I, fine, evaluate me all you want. I, I don't, I, I, I read them. I, I don't not care about those evaluations, but I would much rather have more of an evaluation of you, of each other, right? I say this to every single student, you will learn more from each other than you'll ever learn from the professoriate at this place. Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to shock you how much, how big that differential is, right? Because it's when you, you see each other a shitload more than you see me twice a week in lecture, right? Or in office hours. And it's those discussions proverbially at the water cooler or for you, it's at the new gym, which everyone wants to go to that they can't, which looks incredibly impressive by the way, uh, <laughs> or, you know, at the WID or wherever it is that you're congregating, right? Those discussions, that's to me, the real education of this place. Um, and I, I don't think we make a big, a, as big a point about that as we should, at least the professoriate, because we're, you know, we're used to, you know, you know, showing our ring for you to kiss or whatever. No, no, that's absolutely the wrong approach. Well, I think, I think that's a really good place to uh, end our conversation. Um, thank you again for your time. I know we've been a little bit over our hour, but you've got a lot of things. That that's you okay. Yeah, that's, you know, <laughs> a short one for me. I enjoyed it. Yeah. yeah. It's fine. We, we got our, we got our agenda for this. But as soon as we got into it, it felt like what you were saying was far more interesting than what we were going to bring up anyway. Yeah, I mean, edit, edit as you will. But I also think that, um, you know, you could also slip in, um, you know, you could slip in a few other questions from you that I kind of answered that you didn't ask. If, if you want to oh, you know, yeah. kind of vary the you know, the, the, my talking versus you talking quotient yeah. a little bit more, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I really, um, it's, it's probably the one thing that, you know, I, I just want, um, you know, I want you to appreciate the power of these ideas and how, um, you know, even watching a guy like Joe Biden or some of the, or Kamala Harris or the young woman who gave the poem today, um, you know, we, we, we don't start, you know, as much as I enjoyed the Kennedys, they're, they're no more, you know, we're not in dynasty, you know, politics anymore. Right. Um, you know, it, it's not, you know, politics is still, you know, a really, an, you know, a business of wealth. Um, and this can be off topic or, you know, off the record or whatever. Um, I, I would like to think that becoming politically active um, is less an issue of going to the right school or, you know, you know, taking the right major or getting the right internship as it is. Um, well, here's something particularly bizarre. Have you ever gone to Morris Raman? Do you know Morris Raman on the school? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, so you know that the, the owner is now a member of the state legislature. So oh. she ran, yeah, wow. yeah. And, that, and that woman is just, I mean, she's a marvel, right? I mean, not only is it fantastic food, right? But, you know, if you're able to run a restaurant during a pandemic and run for office and get elected, I mean, it, you know, I'm sure that she's not poor running that restaurant, but, you know, she's not a Kennedy, you know, she's not Warren Buffett. And I think those, 
are the kind of success stories, whether she goes any further than being a member of the Wisconsin State Legislature, um, the success stories that you're seeing in terms of how many non-white males uh, are in this administration is, uh, and the fact that it's not just kind of ticking boxes. We're not, you know, we're picking these people, you know, Janet Yellen to me is the most qualified central banker of my lifetime. She also happens to be female, right? What, what a luxury for me that we're getting to that point where it's quite clear that it's not just picking a woman for this job. It's picking the best person for this job who happens not to be a white male. Um, if you want something to hang your hat on in terms of being optimistic, uh, you know. Definitely yeah, not. That's it. Yes. Absolutely. Among others. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you again. Very good. My pleasure. Yeah. Nice to see you both. Yes. Good to see you too. Uh, have a great start to the semester. I know it's a little bit different, but you know, we're, we're all good. Different and more of the same. Yes, you too. You too. That was David Johnson. I hope you guys all enjoyed it. I loved the discussion. I think we touched on a lot of fascinating topics that are really relevant to college-age students. I think universal basic income as a possibility for our future is so interesting. So I really enjoyed hearing his take. And I mean, the college fund forgiveness, um, that would also be amazing. So. Yeah, he's just such a such an animated guy, and a really smart guy that too. Um, I think people that haven't had David Johnson could probably see how he's such an entertaining lecturer. And if those who have, I'm sure, can uh, recognize uh, the David Johnson in this episode as the one they had in the lecture. Um, regardless, I think that was a super fun episode. Just getting to hear his takes. Um, hope you enjoyed, and we'll see you for our next episode. Thanks for coming.